Let's continue in our worship. Please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. Believe it or not, we're about to finish chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. And soon we'll be going into chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Some great chapters in the Word of God. Let me read the text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those to shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering, to the persevering of the soul. Lord, as we are in your word, we desire to seek your face, to know you, to hear you, to grow in you, to see you in your word. And we pray that you would continue to meet with us, change us, and that you would be glorified, Lord, in our faith and in our lives. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. We need some heroes. Have you heard that song before? Has anybody heard that song before? Am I the only one? We need some heroes. Have you heard that song before? Maybe. So there was a Christian band, uh, gosh, they're in the 80s, and they would play this song, and maybe there'd be a couple of thousand people there, and the song would start off kind of slow, then the chorus would be, we need some heroes. And uh, right when they said that, these lights would shine out in the audience, and you would go, we need some heroes, boom, and, you know, go like this. That whole audience would. You know, it's very moving, very impactful. It, it would get you very excited. We need, you know, very soft music, and then we need some heroes. And, you know, you'd pump your fist, like, yeah. And the chorus went like this. We need some heroes for the Lord. We need some heroes strong in the word. We need some brothers to carry the fight. We need some sisters with faith to do what's right. Stand up. Stand up. We need some heroes. You guys don't know that song? Maybe we should make it hymn of the month. <laughs> we need some heroes. And so I, I would get very pumped. Because I, I wanted to be, I, I think you do, a, a hero for Jesus. But the more that I, I would think about it, I would think, you know, probably I should start with having my quiet time. You know, that, that might be, 
the first step to be a hero is actually, for the Lord is actually to read my Bible and, and to pray. It can be, I don't think it's wrong, but it can be easy to get excited at a concert where you have 5,000 youth and a band with lights and music and, of course, fog to sing together and pump your fist. You know, we need some heroes. And you're thinking, yes, I, I can be that hero for the Lord. And this section that we're in, I think in a true sense, really chapter 10, verse 32, really all the way into chapter 12, in a sense, is about being a, a hero of the faith. And also, in a sense, it does start with looking at Jesus, though it kind of goes backwards. And here's what I mean. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, after the chapter 11, where it talks about these great heroes of the faith, in chapter 12, it calls us, verse 2, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so certainly our our stare, our, our gaze primarily needs to be upon Jesus. But if you look in chapter 11, there's a whole list of, of men that are heroes of the faith. And even some women, of course, that are heroes of the faith. Faith, I, I think of Rahab, Deborah, and others. But even in this section, verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. But even verse 32 talks about Samson. And of course, we see Abraham, and Abraham wasn't this perfect person. He had many issues. But we are ingrained to look at chapter 11 as the chapter of faith. It's a hall of faith of these faithful Beloved saints of God. However, if you keep looking, there is, is a true sense in which, I think, chapter 10, verse 32 starts the hall of faith. Chapter 10, verse 32 starts the hall of faith. That's why in verse 39 of chapter 10, the writer says, But we, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Now, faith is this. And then chapter 11 is going to talk about that faith, and it's going to give many examples of that faith. And if you look at when it talks about Abraham and Moses, both Abraham and Moses in chapter 11 are looking beyond this world and this life to a, a different and a, a better place and a better city. If you look at chapter 10, verse 34, it says that these beloved Hebrews, these believers in the book of Hebrews, it says that they accepted joyfully the seizure of their own property, knowing that they had something better for them. So already in chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is describing these Christians that were being tempted to leave the faith. They were struggling to a degree, but he tells them in verse 39, he believes they're not going to fall away, they're not going to shrink back, that they are faithful all the way until the end. Because they are looking 
to a different city, a different home. They're looking unto Jesus already. And that's what Abraham and Moses and, and David and Joseph and Deborah, Gideon, and all the others were doing as well. Sometimes we think a hero of, of the faith means Abraham, David, Moses. And certainly they are heroes of the faith. But this book here also, when it describes these believers, it uses almost exact same words in verse 34, that they knew that they had a better possession and a lasting one. There is a biblical sense in which to be a hero for the Lord doesn't mean that you do a miracle. It means you take another step of faith the next day for Jesus. Especially through difficult times. And if we can do that, there is a true sense in which then you are in the hall of faith. Just like these beloved believers were, you too and I can be in the hall of faith by when we have really difficult times, we fix our eyes on Christ and we take one more step closer to Christ by faith. So really this whole passage... I'm saying chapter 10, verse 32, all the way to the end of chapter 11, maybe even the the beginning of chapter 12, down to 12, verse 3, perhaps. That whole section, we could say it this way. Faithfully press forward by faith in Jesus Christ, especially during difficult times. And at least you'll be in God's hall of faith. May verse 39 be said of us, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering all the way into the end. Now, this passage, again, I'm saying chapter 10, verse 32, all the way to the end of chapter 11. Perhaps we can include chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's saying, faithfully press forward, especially when there's difficult times. And there's three means to do this that we see in this passage, this whole unit. And the first one, the first means, is understand the best is yet to come. Realize the best is yet to come. And we see that in verses 32 to 34 of chapter 10. Now that phrase is being used today in a political way. And we certainly hope that in the future our own country, our own republic will get better. But this clause, the best is yet to come, has been used throughout history and many theological books and commentaries. (laughs) I think I used it like in 2016, uh, 15. Somebody took the sentence from me maybe and used it in their slogan. The best is yet to come is a biblical idea and a biblical thought, but it's primarily focusing on this better possessing and one that is eternal, heaven, being at home with the Lord. And we see this 
here in the text. And first, we want to look at the historical situation, and then we'll look at the theological context. So first, the historical situation in verses 32 and 34, you can see that there was a difficult time that they were having, and they're commanded to remember their suffering. Look at verse 32, but remember the former days. They are to remember their their testimony of how they went through a difficult time because of Christ, because they knew who he was for them, that he was their better possession and a lasting one. Because of that, they were able to make it through a, look at verse 32, a great conflict of suffering. And what is being emphasized is that they had been enlightened. You can look at verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened. In fact, that word enlightened in the Greek text is framing the whole sentence. It's saying, you came to the Christ, you were saved, your eyes were opened by the Spirit of God, and that is when you suffered. After you came to know Jesus, after you were in the light, after you were able to see, that is actually when you had a very difficult time of suffering. You came to Christ and Jesus, God, he did not say, okay, now you're a Christian, here's health and wealth. You you became a Christian and you lost health and wealth. (laughs) It wasn't you became a Christian and happy birthday. You became a Christian and things got tough. Remember, Jesus said, there is a commitment that goes with conversion. We are called to deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. And not always, but at times, that can mean persecution. That can mean hardship. And that's what's being emphasized in this text. And even it says, if you look at verse 32, note the three words for for difficulties. Great conflict of sufferings. It wasn't just a little bit of suffering. They were really having a very difficult time. Incredibly hard times. Three different terms are used for this suffering that they were having. When you look at chapter 11... Normally, if it talks about these heroes of the faith... Perhaps not everyone, but for most of them, they were having faith through difficult times, some type of trial, some type of struggle. Faith is for, especially going through difficult times. And it was true of these believers here in chapter 10. And now the word is going to get very specific on their situation. And he says in verse 33 that they were partly by being made a public spectacle. When it says a public spectacle, the word public is where we get, that Greek word is where we get our English word theater. So it's the idea that they were mistreated out in the open. And in such a way, it was like they were up on the stage being humiliated and mocked in front of everybody. Like, almost like, you know, the five o'clock news or six o'clock news. They, they were being broadcasted everywhere. Maybe on, on Instagram. 
YouTube, Facebook. Look how foolish these so-called believers are. They were made a, a spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They were insulted. They were mocked, harassed, and humiliated. Now, we don't know the exact details. We do know that they were losing their property in verse 34. It seems that some people may have been saying something to the effect of, you came to Christ and now your life has gotten really miserable. Now what are you going to do? But in some way, they were being persecuted, not privately. You know, there are times when we are persecuted and maybe somebody says a name to us. Maybe somebody does something. to. I've had, uh, when I was in India, some people put uh, manure on my motorcycle seat or a coconut in my exhaust. You know, that it wasn't that humiliating. You know, I I just wiped it off. But in, in some way, these believers, out in front of the open, they were being put down in such a way that they were being made fun of and mocked, almost like it was a comedy up on a stage is the idea of the text. It was very difficult. They were open and bare, open shame. Why was this? Well, keep looking at verse 33, and it says, they were made this comedy play out in the open where they were the object of everybody's bad joke, but partly it was because they would become Sharers. They were having koinia, fellowship, partnership with those who were so treated. It's the idea almost as if you have, let's say, this side of the room here on my left was being persecuted and mocked and made fun of. That Stilicum and, and Tacoma were calling you dumb and all kinds of bad names and, and, and worthless and you're, you're the refuge of the earth. You're, you're, you're disgusting. And you're over here, and what you do, this on my right, is you don't run away and say, okay, I'm not going to become part of that. You don't walk away, you run over here and join your brothers and sisters. Because you love them and want to have fellowship with them. And you choose, I choose, I'm not trying to choose persecution, but I choose them over safety. I choose, I'm willing to be humiliated with them than to be safe. And then verse 34 is going to go even more in depth. It's going to give more support and explanation for this. It goes more behind the scenes for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Some of these believers were imprisoned. It seems they were believers. The prisoners. You showed sympathy. Not just that you had in your heart, oh, I feel so bad for them. I, I love them. I'll pray for you from over here. Then you pray, go your way. That, that 
That would be fantastic. But it's more than just praying. Sometimes, and again, it's not, it's great. We send a care package. You know how many times we got care packages from Pilgrim Bible Church when we were in India? We always looked forward to them because they were filled with such great things. They were filled with great things. It's great to get a care package. These people said, we'll pray for you. These believers that the letter of Hebrews were written to, that were struggling, said, we'll pray for you. They gave a care package, but they also did what? They didn't just send it in the mail. They brought the care package and gave it to this this group of people that were suffering. That's the idea of sympathy. It's not just that they felt like, I feel bad for you, but it's this compassion and action. I, I feel so bad that I have to do something about it myself in a tangible way. And because they acted like that, what happened, you can see in verse 34, and so what happened is their property was plundered. Their personal property was was ripped off, stolen, seized. Again, we don't know for sure, but it seems that perhaps when they were visiting these prisoners, uh, most likely believers that because of their faith had been put in prison, when they went to uh, to spend time with them, to help them, right? The, these prisoners the, uh, wouldn't probably have any water, may not have any food, may not have any clothes in prison. So they were bringing them essential needs. Well, when they were gone out of their homes, apparently these believers had their own possessions stolen from their house. Now, think really about what this means. I was thinking about it this week. What does it mean that their property was seized? I was in India years ago, and through a series of circumstances, I was gone on a trip for a few days, and my shirt got wasted. It just got soiled and messed up on a couple of shirts and uh, luggage fell on the train, fell in this mud and cows and all this stuff. Okay, it was bad. So I, I, I didn't have really any clothes in terms of a shirt to wear. So one of my friends in India gave me his shirt. And so we went to his closet and he had, how many shirts did he have in his closet? He had three. And he gave me his best shirt. And to be honest, if you came to my house and said, Tom, I, I really need a shirt, I would give you a shirt that I probably don't even wear anymore. I wouldn't give you my best shirt, to be honest. I, I probably wouldn't do that. And there are times when I go into my closet and I say, I need to take, what stuff can I take to Goodwill? You know, I can probably take four shirts, three pants, Three pairs of shoes on the left side of my closet. You understand what I'm saying? We have an abundance of wealth. These people had hardly anything, hardly nothing. And it was seized because they were willing to suffer with God's people. And their response is that they had joy. You were willing to show true compassion to relieve other people's suffering, 
even if it meant you would actually be verbally, maybe even physically persecuted in some way. Here, they were persecuted physically by having their property ripped off, stolen. They wouldn't, historically, they wouldn't have had that much. Maybe a few belongings of clothes, maybe two pairs of shoes, hardly anything. And their response is that they were glad. It doesn't necessarily, in verse 34, when it says joyfully, it doesn't mean giddy. It doesn't mean that they were dancing around saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. But it does mean that they had this deep down gladness and the heart where they could say, it is well with my soul. It's okay. I can have joy. For them, it wouldn't be the clothes that I could give to goodwill. The computer I don't use got taken. It would be the computer I use, the cell phone I use, my best shirt, my favorite shirt and favorite shoes, all got stolen. But I'm glad. How could they have this attitude? Well, it tells us very specifically in verse 34. It's a participle, a verb or a participle that's describing how they could receive this crime against them with such a joyful attitude because they knew something, they understood something, that they had a better possession and a lasting one. Truly, for them, the best was yet to come. They were grasping the truth that the things of this life are are fleeting, are, remember book of Ecclesiastes, are, are heavily. That it's, it's a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow, and ultimately do not last. They're transitory. There is something that is greater. There's a person that's greater. And that there is a place that is greater. And that's in heaven at home with Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 talks about the glories of heaven are uncomparable for the believer. Revelation chapter 22, remember, it lists all the different features of New Jerusalem. It lists all the different gold and diamonds and emeralds and all these different jewels. I have no idea what they mean. And even today, some of the gems that are in that list are are unknown, don't know really what they are. And people always ask, are those literal? Is the gold literal? Is it not? Is And I, I try to interpret and think of it this way, it's more literal than you can possibly imagine. Meaning that it is more, heaven is more literally wealthy than you can ever, ever possibly believe in your mind. There's more health and more wealth in heaven that you could ever, 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 ever capitalize Capsulize in your in your brain, not able to imagine it that way. In fact, Hebrew, even Hebrews chapter two, verse ten, when it's talking about this, says, "And bringing many sons to glory." One of the best ways to describe heaven with Christ is glory. It's going to be glorious, far more glorious than the best that this life would ever have to offer. And even last year, last year's camp, when 
my father-in-law was dying, I ended up preaching on Revelation, I think 22, and we compared this earth to camping out. So the, the very best that this earth has to offer. Think of the very best. Maybe, you know, maybe you have a favorite car. What if you had 10 of those favorite cars? What if you never, ever, ever got sick? Ever, ever. Anything you wanted, you could snap your fingers and a, a servant would, would bring it to you. What if you were as, as tall and as thin and as handsome, as beautiful as you ever wanted to be? Wouldn't that be fantastic? What if you had superhero strength and powers? The very best that this world could ever offer you is incomparable to the glory of who you will be with and what you will have in Christ in heaven forever. And that's what this verse is saying when it says they were able to do this with joy. That is, I'm willing to suffer with other believers, not not so I can feel good about myself. I suffered. I'm such a hero. No, somebody has a need. I, I need to meet that need. Even if I'm going to suffer and be persecuted, I still need to meet that need. And if I am persecuted and I lose uh, out on some things, I can have joy, I can have gladness, because I know, actually, in this world, every, everybody dies, everything disintegrates, and what am I taking with me? Nada. I ain't taking nothing with me. Nothing. So I can let it go. Because Christ is everything, and he has all that I need, and that's going to be a world and a life of glory. My question is, how do I get get there? I, I understand how I can have this joy because I, I, I know that there is that this life is real and for the believer to live is Christ. And so I want to be all healed here and live vibrantly and be thankful and love God, love my family, love my church, love my nation. I want to be all here. But at the same time, I understand that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but God has in store for all those who love him, that heaven's going to be infinitely glorious. And to be able to grasp that truth in such a way that if terrible things happen, I can still have gladness? How do I get there? How, how do I know? It says knowing, but how, how do I know it in such a way? Because I know it conceptually, don't you, already in your head? But how do we get to the place where we know it in our heart? So just a few ideas. Very, very simple. Number one, read about it in the Word. Right? You have to feed your mind. To get to your heart, you have to feed your mind the Word of God. Number two, don't just read it. Study it. Study it. You get a pen and paper. Maybe diagram the passage. Read a few books on it. A few commentaries, make some notes, some ways that you can apply it, study it. Number three, pray about it. Pray about it. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to help you to not just conceptualize it in an abstract way in your head, but get it down into your heart. I'm reminded of Ephesians 3.17, where Paul prays for the believers at Ephesus that they might comprehend the height, the width, the depth, the, the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
May we pray in that way. Number four, and here's, I think, the hardest one, get rid of something. That doesn't mean, like, I have this old pair of shoes. I, I feel so spiritual right now. I'm going to take my old shoes and take them to Goodwill and then pat myself on the back. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. <laughs> but we, we should be willing to give up something maybe that we use sometimes. For practice, I challenge you, just for practice, don't use your cell phone for one day. Now, that's a great way to do that. How can you at least once a year not use your cell phone for a whole day? Go to camp. If you go to camp, you will not use your cell phone at least for one day, most likely, unless you go over there to the cafeteria. And actually, it wasn't that hard to do. I didn't miss my cell phone at all. At least last year I, I did. I had to call Lisa about dad. But most of the time you can do without your cell phone. What, what I'm saying is take something that you enjoy, that you like, and just set it aside for a day. And maybe by practicing a type of self-denial, we can train ourselves. You know, I can even do without something that I think is a need. I don't always need to have a cell phone. I, I, I don't need always to have the, the, the best thing that I want. I, I don't need maybe to have as much clothes and as many things as I think I need to have to be happy. Because I have Jesus. And I can't take any of these things with me. Forever, I, I'm not going to have all this stuff. I'm going to have something better. I think the main idea is that we get closer and closer to Christ. And the closer we are to Christ, we see that he's all that we need. He is that better possessing possession and the one that lasts. So that's the first means. We understand, we realize in our heart, the best is yet to come. We train ourselves to understand that. It's not that I can't enjoy good things. God gives us all things to uh, richly enjoy. But at the same time, I need to realize there are some things I can do without. And I should be willing to give some of those things up to help somebody in need. Number two, the second means. Refuse to lose your confidence. Refuse to lose your confidence. And I'm talking about gospel confidence. And this is verses 35 to 39. Refuse to lose your confidence. That is confidence in the gospel. But I, I can remember I was playing football. It may have been here, out there, on the cement. I think it was like six on six. And it was, it was such a glorious day. I have, to, I have to be honest with you. I was, I was really good. I, I passed four touchdowns. I couldn't miss it. I would just step back and like three-step drop. Guys over there in the corner, like right in the corner of the end zone, touchdown. We got the ball back again. This time, go to the right corner. Boom, touchdown. I can feel it. And then next time, maybe like we're ahead like 14 to zero. I said, just do this fly pattern. Just go straight. I'll just toss it over your head. Okay. Piece of cake. I feel it. Drop back. 
lands right in a guy's arms, touchdown. Like, yes, I knew I was this good all the time. So then we get the ball back again. I say, do like a post from this side to that side. Go to the post. And I'll just hit you over there. Angle. Touchdown. I'm like, man, finally all these guys know how good I am. It's fantastic. Go back again, like a fifth time. I'm going to score like probably 100 points this game. So I go back. And there was some water or something. So I went back and I slipped. And I fell down right on my bottom. And the ball went up. Some uh, young man got it, ran back for a touchdown. We ended up losing the game because then I threw like three more interceptions. <laughs> and what happened to my confidence? And one of the young men said to me, Tom, you lost your confidence because you, you slipped. And you threw an interception and then you lost it. You should have kept being confident. Now that's a a physical example, but the, the same thing can happen to us spiritually with the gospel. We can be going full blast for the Lord. We slip, we fall into sin, something happens, and then we just, uh, forget it. Forget it. And so this passage is saying, don't throw away your confidence. And this whole context of the book of Hebrews, it's the confidence in Jesus, the confidence that God in Christ, because of his atonement, your sin is crushed, it's covered, it's cleansed. He is for you and with you. Don't lose your firm assurance in that truth. Because if you do, then it's hard to keep on going. So first... There's this action that we don't do. And you can see in verse 35, he says, Therefore, summon up all that has just been said, so that you can keep having this attitude that you had in the past, where you were willing just to let things go, and yet even things that were precious to you and still have joy, in order to have that same kind of attitude, don't cast aside this confidence that you have in the gospel. This assurance that you have, not in self, this, it's not self-reliance, it's gospel reliance. That's what this confidence is talking about. That God is for you and with you because of Jesus. Don't give that up. Confidence often in in sports and and in other uh, areas, perhaps in business, perhaps in martial arts, construction, whatever it is. And that's not necessarily wrong, but you have this vision that I can do it. I'm, I'm able to do it. I have the training. I have experience. I've had success. I'm going to go for it. That's not necessarily wrong. In life, we want to realize that God has given us these abilities, and it's by his grace. But especially as we live for Jesus, it's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without Christ, I can do nothing. Like Paul said, I I labored more than all the apostles, than all of them. Name them. You know, Peter, James, I labored more than all of them. But yet not I. It was the grace of God that was in me. This is the the type of confidence that we see in, in verse 35 it was already used, this word, for example, in chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. 
It's not that we go to God and pray saying, you know, beating our chest, Lord, I am strong. I am spiritually tough. Rather, we go with gospel confidence. It's that perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus through his work and through his person. I can go boldly toward God. Same idea here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. There is this bold assurance that I have that I can keep going forward. Not because I'm so spiritual, but because Christ kept going forward. Because Christ atoned for all my sin on the cross. Because he rose again. Because Hebrews chapter 1, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 7, I think is verse 25. He lives to make intercession for me. So because of those truths, I have confidence that I can keep going on. And so I don't cast that aside. In fact, if I fall down, and when I do fall down, when I do sin... My confidence is not, I can be perfect. I can be the best Christian in the world. I'm never going to sin again. My hope and my confidence is that there's a person that has not sinned. There's a person that was tempted greatly by Satan, but he never sinned one time. And he never leaves me. And he's my savior, my great high priest, my prophet, my king, my Lord. And that's Jesus Christ. He's my confidence, my hope. My firm assurance. And then the text is going to give us at least four motivations to not throw away this confidence. That especially when things get tough. With sin in your own life, sin in other people's lives, sin in the world. We keep our hope, our firm assurance, and who Christ is, what he's going to do, what he has done, but even as we'll see, what he will do. So there are these motivations that we see in the text. And you see this in verse 35 and verse 36, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The motivation is this. Perseverance brings reward. Perseverance brings reward. That is, we, we keep going on with Christ, for Christ. Our confidence and our hope, our, our boast, our strength is, is in Him. We're confident in who He is and what He's done. And we keep it there. Why? Because if we do that, the text says, look at the end of verse 35, there is a great reward. Look at verse 36. You have need of endurance, uh, persevering in difficult times. So when you do what the Bible says, that is when you've done the will of God, what God has said in his word, you're going to receive what was promised. And even chapter 11 would talk about that faith receives a reward. Chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What is this reward? Well, we'll talk about it more later in Hebrews eleven six. But for now, we could say it's heaven. Not, not by good works, but Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, but that faith that saves is not alone. It does persevere. And the reward is being with Christ forever in glory. That's ultimately what was promised. But even think of of other promises, and again, we'll look at more later. 
But for example, Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There is a pressing into faith. There's a pressing into it as you seek God and you're, you're trusting him, even when things don't look the best, that God promises he will give you all that you need until it's time for you to depart this life and go to the next life. Right? Matthew 6, he'll give you life, he'll give you clothes, he'll give you food. He'll give you everything you need until it's your time to go to heaven as you lean upon him with all your weight. And I believe that's what verse 35 and verse 36 is pointing to. That faith, true faith, will persevere in God's promises like Abraham, like Moses, like Joshua. Like Rahab, like David. Abraham, certainly, we saw in Genesis, definitely not perfect. But he was persistently seeking to persevere in his faith. And his reward, ultimately, heaven. Not because he was good enough, but because he had faith. And there is also other rewards, like joy, even a type of Enabling grace, God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is a confidence not in ourselves, it's a humble confidence in the gospel of God. And so we endure through that. Why? Because that's really where we see God's promises activated. When when times are difficult and we have faith that, that perseveres through those times. You know, Philippians chapter 4, right? Banks us for nothing but by prayer and supplication that your requests be made known to God. And it's then that that perfect peace of God in Christ will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's the reward. There's a greater reward, glory, perfect wealth and health and heaven forever, but there's even these present rewards. But it comes through this persistent faith that endures. So that's one motivation. There is a second motivation to live this way. That is my hope, my confidence is you know, the world can do whatever it wants to me and to my life because my confidence is in the gospel. Why should I act and live and think this way? Because Jesus is going to return soon. Because Jesus is going to return soon. You can see it here in the text, verse 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And he's putting together verses from Isaiah and Habakkuk chapter 2. And both those passages deal actually with judgment Habakkuk judgment on Israel, but also judgment upon all the nations. I think it's Isaiah 26, 20 and Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And ultimately, those passages in Isaiah and Habakkuk, they had historical fulfillments, but both of them were pointing ultimately to the return of Christ. And so here again, in the book of Hebrews, it's speaking of eschatology. But it's speaking of eschatology in a very pragmatic, practical sense, not in some kind of abstract, esoterical sense. Here when it talks about his return, it's given reasons why you, sh- you shouldn't throw away your, your hope, your assurance in the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is going to return soon. 
And in verse 37, it says, in a little while. Both That's from Isaiah, from Habakkuk, he will not delay. That is this. You know, we can look at this text and say, well, it's been two, at least 2,000 years since this was written. So I think it's been a little bit of a delay. I mean, right? Honestly? Like, I would understand if Christ came back in three years, but it's been 2,000 years. Well, the idea is here, according to God's timeline, not your timeline, not my timeline, but according to God's timeline, he's not delayed. He hasn't gone to plan B. He's on plan A. And at the perfect time, the right time, God's time, God the Son, the Messiah, the priest, the king, will return. Absolutely, we can say his return is sooner now than it ever has been ever. And I would just say this before we go on to the next point, just to remind you. Eschatology in the Bible is not primarily about when are you going to be raptured? What rapture should you believe in? The nature of the millennial period. Not that you shouldn't study that. Not that it doesn't have any importance. I'm not saying that. But the most important thing is Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to make all evil his footstool, as we saw earlier in Hebrews. Therefore, how then do you live? You press forward in faith faithfully. How terrible it would be if you chose tomorrow to be unfaithful and he comes on Tuesday. That would not go well. That, that would be a shame. So this text is saying to the Hebrew Christians and to us, live every day as if he's not delaying, he's coming back today. It, Jesus could very well return today. But then, you know, there are some believers, and if you're this way, change. There, there are some believers, he, he can't return yet. He can't return yet. Because according to the timeline I have in my Bible, this, 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 this has to happen. He can't return yet. That's not how eschatology is taught in Scripture. Paul expected his return was what? Imminent. So don't get into, but the rapture and, and, and the millennium. Yes, study those things, but realize that the Bible is consistently, consistently teaching that the Lord's return is going to be sudden. It, it, it could be on the way, it could be before I finish the sermon. Could be. So live faithfully. There's a third motivation. And again, he, he quotes in the book of Hebrews, like Paul does in Romans 1, verse 17, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God is pleased when we live by what? Faith. That means that we're trusting God for salvation. We're trusting Jesus for salvation. And we're also trusting Jesus to sanctify us, to Enable us to live for him. For example, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You're familiar with this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The only way to live the Christian life is what? By faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians. So even here in the book of Hebrews, it's saying the way to please God is not by being necessarily a fastidious, legalistic, 
very religious type of Christianity person. We want to obey the Lord according to his word by faith. Meaning, remember faith is I recognize, I relinquish, and I realize all that God is for me in Christ. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a fourth motivation, and we'll end the sermon on this. There's four words you need to learn that I need to learn. We can do it. We can do it. Remember how we started the sermon? We need some heroes. This passage kind of ends like that. The writer says, we can do it. Not not you can do it, not I can do it. He says, we can do it. Look at the text in verse 39. But we, we are not the kind of people that are going to fall back and deny Jesus. We're not the kind of people that are going to lose our hope in Christ. We're not like that. We, I believe, you and I, we're going to keep persevering by faith for the persevering and persevering of soul means even life. For our very life, our, our very soul, our very person, you and I, we're the kind of people that will go by faith all the way until the end, until we see Jesus face to face. So this writer believes at least that most of the people he's writing to are, are saved. He's saying, we can do this. Not just, I, I, I kind of hope, we can do it. You and I can go all the way. You have the faith because of Christ and because it's not necessarily the size of your faith, but the object of your faith, you can do great things for Jesus. Now, doing great things for Jesus doesn't mean you necessarily do a miracle. It may be evangelizing. It may be praying more. It may be forgiving more. Whatever God wants you to do, he'll give you the grace to do it. Even the faith, you exercise that faith and do what he wants you to do. But you can do it because of Christ. You are able. In him. And that's what verse 39 is saying. The motivation is most of you here are saved. You, you know Jesus. Then you're able to live for him by faith. And not just to kind of live for him. You can be vibrant for him. You can do it. You can do all things through Christ who who strengthens you. And so when I say we need some heroes, they're all right here. They're right here. And how you take a hero is you take one step of faith. That's it. Take one step. It might be, I'm going to pray. What about if I challenge each one of you, pray one minute longer each day. And for that one minute, maybe it's confess your sin. Maybe it's praying for somebody else. If everybody in this room prayed one more minute every day, would great things happen? I think so. Pray one more minute every day the next week and see what God does. We need heroes? They're right there. That's what verse 39 says. Let's pray. Lord, you are the greatest hero that we need to fix our eyes upon. But you call us, Lord, not to 
sit on the sidelines, but to take steps of faith, even for those that we love, even if it causes us to suffer, Lord, may we have the faith and the confidence in you to that which we need to do, Lord. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you forgive us. And we pray that you would get the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.